This weekend, we continue in our series, Life on Full. It's in Psalm 23. And uh, both Mark and Dave, they referenced a book called Life on Lack by a guy by the name of Dallas Willard. And uh, that book really has formed a frame for us in our approach to how we approach Psalm 23. And this is the opening sentence to that book. He says, the experience of life without lack depends first and foremost upon the presence of God in our lives because the source of this life is God himself. His opening chapter of that book is on uh, the first verse and the fourth verse of of Psalm 23. And next week, you're gonna see that it's the first verse, the fourth verse, and the, and the sixth verse that, they, that forms a frame for where everything lies in between. And at the center of it all is the presence of God. He is absolutely present no matter what's going on. And while that sounds like a, a good idea intellectually, how do we live out that truth? And so if we're gonna experience the, uh, the life on full, that, that we've been talking about, it means that we have to be people who see Jesus is present in everything. I can experience life on full when I see Jesus in everything. Psalm 23 is, is all about a life that flourishes in the midst of adversity. And that's the question. Can we flourish amid suffering? A couple weeks ago, I was on a Zoom call with some church leaders, and we were talking about that very question. That was the question. What, what does it mean, first of all, to flourish, and what does it mean to be a people who flourish amid suffering? And is it possible? And during that Zoom call, we, we worked our way through that because it, it's not uh, easy. It's not something that you just go, oh, okay, yeah, that's just go figure that out on your own. No, it's something that we have to wrestle with. And, and where I landed is, is that flourishing is living the Psalm 23 life. Psalm 23 describes flourishing. That's what it means to flourish, whether it's uh, when the sun's out on great days or, or whether it's dark as dark can be in your world and, and you're not sure God is present, Psalm 23 is the frame of the flourishing life. So it's so much more than what you thought it was. If this is your first weekend joining us, you've heard, uh, you're like, oh, I've not heard this. You know, I'm really familiar with this from, from the, this is the funeral psalm, right? Isn't this the funeral psalm? It's not the funeral psalm. Yeah, it, it's good then. It's a good reminder then. All of God's word is a good reminder in suffering. But really, this is, what does it mean to flourish in the midst of life lived with Jesus? For us as followers of Jesus today, I can experience life on full when I see Jesus is present in everything. The good, the bad, the ugly, he's present in everything. And what we're gonna talk about today is is not sugarcoating it and calling the bad good because Jesus is in it. Just allow Jesus to be in the bad. Just allow Jesus to be in the ugly. And don't fake it till you make it, as Mark talked about the first week. How do I allow God to move me in the midst of my life, in the midst of, of the tough stuff that comes along? Psalm 23, it begins with this. The Lord is my shepherd, I, I shall not want. We talked about, this means what? Yahweh is my leader, I lack nothing. That's what that means. I don't lack it's a, it's a statement. It's a declaration. 
Yahweh is my leader. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the right path or the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death or I walk through the valley of deep darkness, I will fear no evil for you are with me. All right, take your highlighter and a pen. Underline, circle, star, exclamation point, okay? Uh, If you wanna walk away with the point of Psalm 23, it's this right here. You are with me. You are with me. I'm not afraid. Why? You're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. In the margin of your Bible, write, I flourish. An overflowing cup is a flourishing life. Even in the midst of the deepest darkness, in the midst of all the adversity that you can manage, because God is with me, I flourish. And this sounds impossible, right? How is this possible? We're gonna talk about that today. So when it comes to poetry, there's an upside to the fact that it uses uh, vivid imagery called metaphor. It uses vivid imagery to draw us in. As we read poetry, vivid imagery draws us in. That's an upside to, to, to the powerful use of metaphor in poetry is it draws us in. So that's the upside. The downside to the use of metaphor in poetry is you get lost in the metaphor, Okay, you get lost in the metaphor. Allow the metaphor to be the metaphor. And he's like, what are you talking about? And most people don't see the progression in Psalm 23 from shepherd to king because they can't get past the shepherd metaphor. This is just about the shepherd. Oh yeah, it is beginning, but then it goes on to be about a king. And, and we get lost in the metaphor, or we get lost in this idea that we have this, this uh, shepherd imagery that says that, that a shepherd, like shepherds, they're the nicest people on earth. And what they do is they just take all the sheep and they just pet them all day long. Oh, come here. It could be okay. I have no idea about what shepherds do, but I don't think that's it. I don't think if you got a flock that that's going to work. It's about keeping the flock together. And so allow, the, allow the, the metaphor to be what it is. And, and this is what's really, really cool. The first two weeks, both Mark and Dave talked about how Jesus connects this good shepherd language here with, with Psalm 23. And, and, and Jesus just doesn't show up out of the blue in, in John chapter 10 and all of a sudden go, hey guys, I got a new metaphor for you. I'm the good shepherd. Hey, you guys think in terms of flocks and people herding flocks, I'm the good shepherd. This isn't, this isn't a new image. This has been all throughout God's word, all through the Exodus, all throughout the Old Testament. There's this image that Yahweh is the shepherd of the people of God and, and that he has put shepherds in charge of God's people. And so he talks about the children of Israel being a flock and the leaders that he's put over the children of Israel, they're, they're called shepherds. And so it's about the leaders. And then in Ezekiel 34, God promised the children of Israel that he was gonna give them a new shepherd king. 
that, that their previous leaders, their previous kings, that, that, they, that they had gone out of line. And because they were out of line, he was going to bring judgment upon the leaders of Israel. He calls them shepherds. I'm going to bring judgment on the leaders of, of Israel. And, and what was their high crime and misdemeanor? What was the thing that the leaders had, had done? They had led for selfish gain. They had led the, the children of Israel in order that they would be able to achieve more. They hadn't lived out God's instruction that they would care for the people of God. Instead, it was about elevating themselves. And so in Ezekiel 34, Here's what, what Yahweh said. He said, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Now, we need to understand timelines here. If you're not familiar, King David's dead, okay? This is after King David has, let, has lived this is well after that. And so this is now a new King David. So there's going to be a new King David who's going to be set over the people of God. This is the imagery that Jesus is connecting to. When he says, I'm the good shepherd, I, I'm the different shepherd. Now, you know, let's be clear. The, the, the children of Israel did not understand what Jesus was saying. The Jewish people did not get it. That he was connecting here, not, not just back to Psalm 23, but to Ezekiel 34 and saying, I am the one. I am the new King David. I am the shepherd king that God has promised you. So in that, it's just a good reminder for us that, that the more familiar we are with God's story, the more the imagery that God has used, the more it means. Okay? The more significant it is, the more that when, when I read Psalm 23, I, I don't see that I'm just back reading Jesus into the text because I'm a follower of Jesus today. It was always supposed to be a song about Jesus, that, that he is the good shepherd, and for followers of Jesus, this can be our song. And so um, it's really hard to talk about this psalm and not come to this to this part in verse four where it says, uh, even though I walk through the valley of shadow of, of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And so this is another place where we get lost in the metaphor because of the language. The reason that this gets uh, framed, you know, as, as a funeral song is because it uses the word death in the valley of shadow of death. But, but why? Why do Bible translators use that in the translation when, when the translation that, that's maybe more accurate, it, it's not maybe more accurate, it's more accurate, is the valley of deep darkness in the darkest place you can imagine. Well, in the ancient mind, and remember when I say the ancient mind, I'm just talking about the, in the days in which the Bible was written. If you hear ancient mind and you connect that to unintelligent, you're, you're hearing that wrong, Okay highly intelligent, multiple languages. I say this all the time, you know, ancient people invented math, okay? We just do it on our phone, okay? So if we think they were unintelligent, we have a lot to learn. And so in the ancient mind, though, what's the places of deep, deepest darkness? It's the, the place beneath the earth. What's that called? It's called the underworld. It's the place that you go when you die, when you're separated from God. It's the deepest, darkest place you can imagine, 
And so out of tradition, Bible translators will say the shadow of death, but it's the deepest, darkest place you can imagine. The word is the place of deep gloom, the gloomiest place. And so far in this psalm, it's talked about God's provision for both our physical and emotional needs. It's talking about our physical needs and our spiritual needs. And it comes to this place, it's using vivid imagery to help us imagine this dark place. And so for me, I, I, I imagine, I cannot read this psalm without imagining going back to 1994. I don't know if you have a place, okay? If you have a place that you can imagine the darkest place in space that you've ever been, go there. I'm talking about physical darkness, For me, it's 1994 in the woods of Quantico, Virginia. In the woods of Quantico, Virginia on a military training exercise with 40 other guys in the woods and it was dark and and the the stuff was thick. As we were marching through the woods, we're not actually marching, we're, we're Baylor crawling, trying to find our way to the objective, trying to navigate through the woods, long line, 40 guys who can't see the person in front of them. You literally had to hold on to the backpack in front of the guy in front of you so that you didn't get lost. It was so dark that, that uh, the officers in charge of the training exercise said, hey, it's over. <laughs> this is over. This has now become about just finding our way out of the woods, okay? Mission accomplished. Pull out your compasses that had a little glow stick on them, throw them over your back, and let's get out of the woods, Every time I go back to that place, because that kind of darkness, it's disorienting. That that kind of darkness, even though you're there with 40 other people, it's still scary. And you never knew where the next um, stick was going to come that might poke your eye out. You you didn't know. And so surely if, if physical darkness can be that scary, emotional darkness can be that scary as well. Maybe even more scary. In the Zoom call, as we talked about what it means to flourish amid amid suffering, what emerged was that that if Jesus was telling the truth in John chapter 10, that we we can have an abundant life. And if God's telling the truth in Psalm 23 and Ezekiel 34, that, that if God's telling us the truth, it is possible to flourish amid suffering. It is possible. But where we landed is, it may be possible, but if we don't engage the process, if we don't engage with God, that that we shouldn't be surprised if we don't experience flourishing amid suffering. And now we're gonna go back to metaphor. Because if this is our metaphor, we're just some little lamb and we're away from the flock and, and we're expecting Jesus to come and just pick us up and pet us that it's gonna be okay. If that's our imagery and that's what we expect Jesus to do, we're gonna be sorely disappointed when he doesn't do that. Why? Because we wandered off. We are sheep, not little lambs. We're sheep. And our job when we start wandering is to look back to the flock and to the good shepherd and go back to the flock. That's our job. It's our job to take steps. And so often what happens is we get lost in the midst of disorientation because we end up, we end up isolating ourselves. We isolate ourselves from God. We isolate ourselves from others. And so we want to talk about it in a real practical way. How do I see Jesus is present? 
How do I see Jesus is present in the midst of a deep, dark, gloomy place? How do I see that Jesus is with me in the midst of the stuff of life that, that sucks us under the first and foremost one that comes to mind, right? Like, is, is when we lose somebody that we love. And just the brutal truth about the culture in which we live is we're not really great at death. We don't handle that so good. There's cultures around the world that are way better at grief and grieving than we are. We just don't know what to do. We don't talk about it, and so we don't know what to do, and therefore we don't talk about it because we don't know what to do. We just pretend like it's not a thing, but we all know it's a thing, and we don't want to actually talk about it because we know that it's a thing, and if I talk about it, then I'm going to remind it, well, that's my future too, and I don't really want to talk about it. And so because of it, we don't really know how to engage in the process of grieving. And so what we do is we spin it, man. We put spin on that. We don't talk about people dying. We don't talk about people passing away. We don't talk about funerals. We, we, we spin that bad boy. I'm going to do that different. I'm not going to have a funeral and allow people to wail and grieve. Instead, I'm going to call it a celebration of life, which it is. But if we're going to celebrate somebody's life and they walked away, surely there needs to be a place and space to cry, to wail, to allow the real emotion of the moment to come to the surface. I know, I know folks that, that are in the midst of that right now. Not in theory, but this week. And I also know people that, that have been in it for a year and they think that it's going to get better and they're in now the second year and it's not better. It's not better. Everybody else has moved on. And now they just feel more isolated because everybody's told them that they should get over it. But we don't get over people that we love. It's a road to walk with Jesus. It leads us to a place of joy in the end. But, but it's not simple. It's, it's not something that you just go, oh, well, you know, it's been 12 months. It's been 24 months. It's been 36 months. You should be better by now. Folks, that's not how it works. It's not supposed to be how it works. It's supposed to be a journey of walking with God along the way. I know folks that, that um, and I can relate. It's just the brutal truth. Every day I get out of bed, I know I'm going to be in pain today, today, right now, right now. I know that I am. I just know that that's true. I know, I know there's many of you that suffer with chronic pain, and the thought of getting up and going through another day some days is overwhelming. What do we do then? What do we do in the midst of that? And for some of you, it's not, it's not physical chronic pain. It's, it's emotional chronic pain. It's depression that, that's so dark that it sucks you under. And, and what do I do in the midst of this feeling of, of hopelessness and a loss of joy that, that I don't think that I'm ever going to recover? It's the story of people that have walked out of our lives. The people who have betrayed us who've left emotional wounds that, that, that are just wide open and raw in the midst of betrayal and abandonment or, or even just misunderstanding that's caused a rift in relationship that, that we're going, God, I, I don't know how to get back to that place of flourishing. 
I don't know how to get across that bridge. I, I, know, I know moms and dads with adult kids that have lost a dream that their kid was going to grow up to love, follow Jesus. They, they, they had raised their kid the, the best that they knew how. That they would know, love, and follow Jesus all the days of their life. And they have turned and they've walked away. And, and, and Dave, you don't know the agony that that causes. The darkness that that brings. So the reason we're using uh, Dallas Willard for this series is um, it's nice to have an outside voice to speak harsh truth into our lives. And so sometimes we need that. We need outside voices. And if you don't know who he is, he's now passed away. He was a professor at USC. And if you were going to say to me, um, who's the biggest discipleship influence in your life? I would say Dallas Willard. I never met the man. I, I, I've, I've read a lot of what he's written. I've watched videos. You definitely want to read him and not watch him. But I'm just saying, the guy shaped me. And his views shaped me. In, in the sense of what does it mean to, to be a follower of Jesus? And, and so he asked this question, in, in the midst of, of a life that goes dark, what do we do then? And I really, it's pretty direct, okay? I, I wrestled this week whether or not to use it. I landed on yes. So, but what about pain, failure, sickness, helplessness, or injury by others? Unfortunately, most Christians today have not been trained in how to meet these inevitable realities of life. So instead of rejoicing in tribulation, as we are instructed in James 1, they give up sulk, closing themselves off to God. Super direct. And way too true. It's way too true. I, I've seen this play out over and over and over again. And sometimes it plays out in my life over and over and over again. Instead of engaging in a healthy process that we're gonna talk about of refocusing ourselves on Jesus, we try all other kinds of stuff. We try other means. We try other possibilities. And so it's not easy, but it is possible and so as life happens, my vision can become blurry, making it hard to see that Jesus is present. It's hard to see Jesus is present in overwhelming darkness. I, I can't see. I, it's the things that are, that are clouding me. And, and we have different ways of coping with those kinds of things. We, we have deniers, as we've talked about, right? The denier, I just deny. And if somebody says, hey, how's it going? It's fine. It's all good. Jesus loves me. Uh, woo, it's all great. And, and that's called plastic. Nobody likes anybody who's plastic, okay? We don't like plastic people. That's fake. We don't want fake. We want to be authentic. And so what does it mean to be authentic? It means that I'm honest with God and I'm honest with others. And in order to do that, I have to be honest with myself. If I'm going to be honest with God, i got to start by being honest with me and confessing to God where I am. We're going to talk about that. But some of us also like to fill that space with, with uh, escapism. Like, 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 okay, I'm just going to go on Netflix and binge for a while. 
And, and I'm just going to pretend like I can just isolate myself from what's going on in the real world like it's not going to happen. Students in college, you, you got a paper coming up. You do this all the time. You got a paper coming up. It's due in a couple weeks. And you feel like, you know what? If I just pretend like that paper's never going to come due, it's never going to come due. So I'm going to keep waiting. I'm just going to go do other stuff, and I'm going to pretend like that paper's never due. And so why would I start it today? If I don't start it, it's never going to come due. And then it's the night before, and you're like, no, I can't believe all this stress. Could have fixed that two weeks ago. Some of us can get lost in the argument with God. And so what I want to talk about is, as we're going to talk about this process of refocusing it does require us to be authentic with God. But there's a difference between being authentic and getting lost in the argument. When I say get lost in the argument, you become the accuser of God and you don't allow him to speak truth. This is where people get lost. If I, if I become the accuser of God and I don't allow him to speak truth, I simply say this, God, you have wronged me. Now, you may be smart enough to know, I would never actually say that. You act as if God has wronged you. God, you have wronged me. How could you? How could you? And so that's different than engaging in an opest, open and honest conversation with God. And so as we take a look at this process, it's right there on the, on the back of your bulletin. We're calling it the refocus process. How do I, when I become disoriented, how do I turn back to what is true? And it begins with an honest dialogue, okay? Honest dialogue may include, God, I feel like you've wronged me. I know that's not true, but I feel that way. That's honest. That's different than being the accuser of God. I hope you get the nuance because it's essential. God, I feel like you have wronged me, but I know that's not true. It's different than God, you've wronged me, okay? I feel like you've wronged me. I feel like you've betrayed me. I feel like you're not present. I, I, I don't feel like you're, you're with me right now. That's honest, but I know that that's not true. And then what? Then you, you listen for comfort, okay? To see Jesus is in everything. I gotta refocus and I begin with this conversation and then I, I listen for comfort. I allow the words of scripture and the inner voice of the Holy Spirit to collide, to bring truth to mind, to bring comfort that, that, that the Holy Spirit, as he may be saying to you, I know you're in pain right now. I'm with you. Maybe that's all that it is. Maybe that's all that it is. I'm with you. I know that you're in, in the midst of a really hard spot right now. I'm with you. I'm with you. And then putting it into to motion, acting in trust. And then it has a little with praise. Something powerful happens when we allow the Holy Spirit to move us to this point of praise. And this is an old illustration. I've used it before, but um, I just as I was thinking about it, as you think about the times in your life where you've experienced maybe two radical emotions, there's a time in my life that really stands out. And it was the week that my father had passed away. He passed away earlier in the week. I was in a worship experience on the weekend. And all of a sudden, these two radical emotions collide. The, the saddest 
kind of emotion and the most joyous kind of emotion, they, they slam together in the middle. And I'm not good at handling one emotion, now give me two. I'm like, what? Talk about disorienting, I was disoriented. Like, what is this, why? What all am I experiencing? I don't even know what all this is. As, as um, this is an oldie, you'll know how long ago this happened. If you're familiar with the song, uh, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. And there's a lyric in that song that says, he gives and takes away. You talk about a terrible song to be singing on the weekend after you're grieving somebody who's passed away, except you know what? It was an incredible song to sing the weekend after somebody had passed away. Because it declares, I'm going to bless God in midst of all things. And all of a sudden, I'm like, how can I be experiencing grief and joy at the same time? And it's only because of the power of the Holy Spirit in the midst of all that's going on that that God shows up in real time and he meets us in the stuff of life. Now, as we're talking about this open and honest dialogue that we're having, the, the, the biblical authors are super familiar with this. The author of the Psalms, the psalmist, the multiple people who've written the Psalms, they, they are really familiar with this concept. It's called lament, okay? This is, there's a lost art out there of something called lament. And so I have a graphic for you. This is all the Psalms. This is a, it's not a brain. This is all the Psalms, and the size of the circle has to do with the size of the Psalm. And you'll see that the largest group up there, the blue group, is uh, called Lament. And you'll see that down there, there's six little Psalms with the word trust. Psalm 23 is one of those trust Psalms. And so there's 59 laments. There's more songs of lament than there are of praise in the 150 Psalms in the Scriptures. It's the largest category, and yet it's the thing that we avoid. And so the process, the refocus process, you could write underneath refocus, you could write lament, because lament takes you somewhere. Lament takes you from what you're feeling and experiencing, reminds you of the truth, and leads you to action with God. That, that's what lament does. It doesn't, it does, it's not making it fake, it's not making it artificial, and it may last for years. What? It may last for years. This isn't like, hey, do this. This isn't like, hey, do this this week and you'll have it all figured out. You'd be good. This is a life. Psalm 23 is a life to be lived. It's a frame. And, and, and that requires that we wrestle with the middle of the frame. The first part's incredible. The last part's incredible. The middle part goes really dark. But the reminder is Jesus is present. I'm present, I'm present, I'm present, even in the midst of the really dark stuff of life. You see, when I refocus on Jesus, I'll find comfort in the dark. When I reorient my world, I'll find comfort in the dark. He's with you. If you've not had this life circumstance, you, you can put this into practice already so that when this life circumstance happens, when, when you lose that job, when, when your marriage ends up on the rocks, when, when you end up losing somebody close to you who you love, you're like, young folks are out there going, I haven't really experienced this yet. You can put this thing into motion already in your life by, by 
allowing the Holy Spirit to guide you through Psalm 23 so that you know, where am I going to go in the midst of the dark space? Oh, yeah, I remember this word lament. I'm going to go there. I'm going to enter into an open, honest conversation with God. Why? So that I don't run away and experience hopelessness the rest of my life. That's the result. And unfortunately, I've seen it too many times that in the midst of feeling wronged by God, people ran away and I've never seen that turn out better. I've only seen people turn out hopeless and bitter. That's it. They're not happier people because they didn't allow the Holy Spirit to take them through a process of refocusing on Jesus. So refocusing on Jesus, I'll find protection amid adversities and adversaries. When I refocus in the, in the midst of adversity, and we talked a lot about the adversity that life brings, okay? We're talking about just the adversity of living in a broken world. That's real adversity. Then in the midst of all those things that are coming, uh, there's, there's real adversity of just living in the world today. And then we come to this idea of adversaries, and I struggled with that one this week. I'm like, if I think about my life, I don't know that I have any real adversaries. I couldn't put a label on it. I couldn't say, you know what, I have any people who are adversaries. And you, you may have a different worldview. Your, your worldview may say that um, if somebody's from a different uh, political persuasion than you are, that you see them as an adversary. Uh, maybe, maybe you're like, oh yeah, well, people of another uh, religious uh, kind of background, you see them as an adversary. I, I personally don't. I see them as the mission of God, the mission of God in the world. And so you think about, yeah, but think of all the United States enemies around the world. That's not what I'm talking about. I, even those enemies around the world are the mission of God. They are not my adversary. That's just how I view the world. You may view it different. And I had to resolve to that really the most important thing that we would see is that, remember back when we went through Ephesians earlier this year, that, that every conflict that is existing within the body of Christ, every human conflict that exists between a follower of Jesus and another follower of Jesus, there is a real spiritual adversary that, that is operating in the spiritual realm. And I'm like, oh, I have adversaries. The people on earth that others see as adversaries, they may be the people that, the, that need the gospel so that they could praise Jesus forever, but, but there's a whole nother sphere of people operating in the, or spiritual beings operating in the spiritual realm that are actively opposed to God's people. They're adversaries. And even in that instance, refocusing on Jesus helps me to, to find protection from that adversary. When I, when I run to Jesus in the midst of that conflict, and when I run to Jesus in the midst of those kinds of things, that's where I'm going to find comfort. And, and for us, as, as we think back to metaphor, okay? As you think back to, to metaphor, he's, as the author of the psalm talks about the rod and your staff, okay? I don't know how we got to you know, petting imagery, when, when really the imagery is rod and staff, and what is the rod and staff good for? One is good to keep enemies away. It's good for protection. What's the other one good for? It's good for discipline and to pull you back to the flock. Get in the flock, right? That's what those tools are there for. Hey, stop wandering. 
Stop wandering. So you know what? Last week, Nichols said, hey, you know sheep. And I'm in going, I don't know sheep. I've never been around sheep. He's like, yeah, you know sheep and they're stupid. I'm like, I don't know this. I don't know this. I don't know sheep. I, I, I've never been around sheep. And the thing is, he hasn't either. He's from Southern California, man. <laughs> that dude's from Southern California. When he comes back from Guatemala, I'd be like, what are you talking about? You don't know sheep. Now, maybe he was on a sheep farm in Southern California. I don't know. But, but I don't know sheep, but I know dogs. I know dogs. This I know. And I know that dogs' attention is easily lost, and they will, they will get distracted in a second. And so you, you're like, your dog, and they're like, oh, yeah, they're doing this. And then all of a sudden, whoop, whoop, squirrel, I'm over here, right? Hey, get back here. And so you can think I'm a terrible person all you want on this one. Um, so we have a dog training device. It's like a TENS unit you would put on your back and give yourself muscle stimulation. It is not a shock collar. <laughs> I would never shock an animal, all right? I want to be clear, but I would give them st stimulation. In our case, our dogs have been on it so long, they just needs, it's just got a little buzzer, and all they need is a little buzzer reminder that, hey, um, I'm over here. All of a sudden, you just give them a little buzz, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm with you. I wanted to chase this. Nope, I'm with you. That's what we need. The rod and the staff, it's like, hey, no, 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 no. Hey, you're wandering off. No, 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 no. Look back here. Refocus, refocus, refocus. Come back to me. No, get your eyes back on me. You're wandering away. Turn your eyes here. Refocus, refocus. And so that's what we want you to do this week. Refocus, refocus. There's a process. Uh, I want to encourage you. Cut out the, the live it out this week. And um, actually, if you cut it down below, you could have the refocus process. But uh, grab their bulletin and look at the, the live it out this week. And what we've done that's different is each day we're going to ask you to pray Psalm 23 as a frame for um, allowing the Holy Spirit to speak into your world, that you would enter into this honest dialogue. And then each day down below, there's an opportunity for you to engage in worship. And then what I really want to point you to is sometimes, guys, we struggle with what do we do it, it, you know, it's Thanksgiving. I want to do something spiritual, but man, this is intimidating. How would I possibly do anything on this day? And so we've given you a tool, and it's this, that you would read Psalm 23, 1 through 3. In the first two weeks, we talked about two things, that Jesus is our leader and he is our provision, and that we can thank Jesus for being our leader and provision. Out of those verses, he's our leader and he's provided what? Everything we need, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and we can thank him for it. And then celebrate the things that you're thankful for, allow the people around your table to celebrate those things, and then redeem the meal. Here's what I mean. Use it like a communion meal. Allow your Thanksgiving meal to be a representation of the goodness of God in your lives. Allow your Thanksgiving meal to be a representation of God's provision. Allow it to be that kind of celebration. And, and then say that out loud. Hey, we're getting ready to throw a party. Jesus is with us in this. He's in everything. And so as we get ready to share this food together, we're celebrating the goodness of Jesus and the abundance of provision that he's given us that we could flourish in everything in life, okay? Given you, we've given you a frame to, to use, and, and I would encourage you then after this week, hold on to this. Keep it close to you so that as you enter into those times of life where you need to refocus, that you would have a process. You would in, actively engage in it, and so what we're going to do right now is, is we're going to ask Jesus a question. And, and uh, a couple weeks ago, I had somebody share this with me that, that she's like, I hate that we ask questions. 
because he never says anything to me. And so I want to encourage you, if you're expecting for this to be a voice from the outside, that's likely not going to happen. It might happen. Come tell me if it does. But most likely it's not. And so what she did is she went to a workshop at Quiet Waters about hearing God and what that looks like. And and she's like, I was so grateful that I went. She's been around Two Rivers a really, really long time, okay? A really long, longer than I've been around Two Rivers, I think. And, and in the midst of that, she, she was like, oh, I finally connected that when I would ask Jesus a question, I might get a picture and that it was actually him communicating to me and, and that I can then take that picture that is in my mind and I can then ask him more questions about it. Yeah. So when you ask Jesus this question, you may already in your mind know, hey, wh- what do I need to start a conversation with you about? You may already instantly know that. Don't discount that because it's a big deal in your life. If you have a big deal going on, that's probably where you need to have a conversation. If you don't have a big deal going on right now in your life, it may be something more subtle. And it could be a feeling, it could be an emotion that comes to the surface, it could be an image, that somebody's face, it could be another image that you see, it could be a thought, it could be a name that crosses your mind. And so all we wanna do in this moment is set up an opportunity for Jesus to give you just the thing to start the conversation about. That as you walk into your week, that you wouldn't let it go, that you would bring it back up and say, Jesus, I need to have a conversation with you about, it could be from a lifetime ago, man. It could be from years ago. It could be what's happened today. So in this moment, God, we're asking that you would communicate to us. We're asking Jesus, would you speak into our our lives in a very personal kind of way what it is that we need to have a conversation with you about?